I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health, fitness, and well-being space to bring you the latest ideas on how to optimize your mind, body, and well-being. The show is brought to you by my company, Body Shop Performance. We create total solutions to optimize your health by focusing on sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. We work with busy professionals on a one-to-one basis for six or 12 months using the latest science and technology. And Body Shop also work with businesses who want to create a culture of energy, vitality and performance and position well-being as a competitive advantage. Find out more at bodyshopperformance.com and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. I'm Leanne Spencer, your host, and my guest today is Anthony Thompson. Anthony started meditating as a teenager. He's worked at an auction house. He kind of lost his way, I think, and we'll find out more about that in in the next 30 minutes, but lost his way a bit with meditation. And finally, through a combination of yoga and I think it was Pilates, met up with a teacher called Gillian Lavender, who encouraged him to explore meditation further, get back into it, studying in, in the UK and India as a Vedic meditation teacher. And what Anthony does now is he's founded a company called Mind Mojo in 2017, which essentially teaches Vedic meditation to people who are looking to live a happier and healthier life. Mind Mojo run events, they run retreats, they run group meetings, they run workshops. It's a company I'm looking forward to hearing a lot more about. But first of all, Anthony, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's lovely to be with you, Leanne. Yeah, brilliant. Well, we just had a few technical issues, didn't we, before we went on air? And I commented rather glibly that it was just as well you meditated this morning because you were very calm in your approach to those technical (laughs) issues. So I'm looking forward to hearing about how you get that calmness, as I'm sure our listeners are. But start us off, if you will, by talking about, it's quite unusual for a teenager to meditate. What got you into it? Who, Who inspired or encouraged you to do that? Well, it is an interesting story, even if I say so myself. I I'm in my early 60s. So as a teenager, I was around the late 60s and early 70s. And then it was very unusual. I mean, today there are teenagers, of course, who are meditating. It's not very common. But back then, in the late 60s, early 70s, it was very unusual. I was at a school which had a very liberal and broad-minded approach to putting things in front of their students. And there was a very sort of enthusiastic attitude to anything that was offered to us. So sometimes, usually when we sort of came out of having had a meal, there would be a big notice board and you'd look at the notice board and you'd say, anybody want to learn, you know, we're putting together a jazz band. We need some tuba players. Anybody want to learn to play the tuba? We need to build a wall uh, down at such and such, you know, on the cricket pitch. Anybody want to come and learn how, you know, bricklaying? And then one day there was a sign that just said, anybody would want to learn how to meditate? Now, I just whacked my name up, and I honestly don't know really what I was thinking at the time. What was my understanding of meditation in 1970, which is when I learned? Of course, I was very much into the Beatles and the Stones, both of whom learnt Vedic meditation. I didn't know that at the time. Oh, really? I knew that the Beatles had gone to India in '68. And, of course, you know, being a sort of enthusiastic teenager, I sort of, you know, followed what was going on in the limited way that teenagers could in those days without, you know, digital help. Mm. And, you know, they came back different people. If I may just touch upon their music for a moment, you know, they were one of the greatest bands in the world. 
performing all over the place. But one of the issues they had was that they couldn't actually hear themselves sing when they were performing because the crowds, the girls especially, were screaming so much <laughs> that they drowned them out. And, of course, their amplifiers and electrical equipment wasn't what it is today. So they decided to abandon touring and go into the studio. And that's when they made the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album. And it's interesting, you know, when you think about it, they changed the name their group from the Beatles to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts, Hearts Club Band and just made that whole album in the studio like they did before with other albums, but they had no intention of touring with it. And as a kid, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. They changed direction. They were obviously smoking quite a lot and kind of getting into the whole psychedelic scene that was going on. Mm. And then they go to India and then they come back and they produce the White Album. Now, if you listen to the last sort of Beatles album, then you listen to Sgt. Pepper's, and then you listen to the White Album, you can see a connection. But actually, that White Album is a zillion miles away from what they were doing two years, years before. And as a kid, I thought, well, you know, India must have had an impact on them. I've then subsequently discovered, because I've sort of walked in the footsteps, their footsteps in India, in Rishikesh, up in the north of India, I've actually visited the ashram that they went to and where they learned, that they wrote over 40 songs in the space of about three weeks. Some of those songs got incorporated on the White Album, some got incorporated into their own solo albums. But it had a massive effect on them. And I just kind of, I and friends, we just kind of picked up on that and thought, okay, well, that's kind of interesting. Obviously, the meditation had something to do with it. And so, you know, a lot of us, I think out of about 600 kids, there were about 250 who said, yeah, we'd be interested. And the master who kind of put this together, he had actually been taught to meditate by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in London. And Maharishi Mahesh Yogi was the very same person who taught the Beatles. They met him in Bangor in Wales when he gave a talk there and he invited them back to India. I went to Union Bangor in Wales. That must be one of their greater <laughs> claims to fame. Oh, it all happens there, I can tell you. Well, <laughs> <Something>. yeah. <laughs> it was a great place. And so Alan, this teacher, he kind of got teachers down from London to sort of, you know, come and talk to us about what it was about and whether we, you know, take us on to the next step. Because I was in a school and there were about 250 of us who did it, there was some structure in the day which allowed us to incorporate meditation. So, in fact, we used to meditate in the school theatre. All of us, anybody who wanted to meditate, would sort of drop into the school theatre during the lunch break. And we'd meditate for 20 minutes and then go back and get on with the day. And then we would meditate in our rooms or find a space elsewhere for, a, for another meditation, perhaps later in the day. And so that structure at school meant it just became part of my daily school life. It was no big deal. And in the holidays, that was pretty easy. One has to remember that, you know, making contact with friends in the holidays was really difficult because using the telephone, you had to ask your permit, you had to ask your parents for permission to use the phone because it was so expensive, you know. And so actually communicating with your mates during during the holidays was quite difficult. And so, you know, we just all did our thing in the holidays and then we went back to school and and you know we were we were meditating right the way through. So for four years at school I was meditating and that was just part of my life. Then I went traveling and then I realized something. I was so naive. You know, one's view, of, uh, you know, teenagers' view of the world today is very, very different to what it was, you know, 50, 60 years ago. You know, I just assumed everybody learned meditation. 
you know, I just thought it was like everybody played football, everybody learned to play a musical instrument, everybody meditated. It was no big deal. And then, you know, as I was traveling around Europe and a little bit further afield, you know, it was quite obvious that not many people did this. And I was in a distinct minority. It didn't worry me. It just surprised me. And then I got to university and I just carried on and, you know, asked around, were people meditating? No, they weren't. One or two people seemed to be doing something else similar, but not what I was doing. That's fine. Then I got to London, started to work in a large auction house. And fairly quickly, within about nine months, I was jumping on and off airplanes and whizzing around Europe, also going to the States, going to the Middle East, going to India, really not, not going to the Far East, but practically everywhere except the Far East. And I was doing this on a consistent basis. I was kind of going certainly every week to Europe. I'd be taking three days a week in Europe, hopping on and off planes, and I'd go to the States for two weeks, both coasts, two or three times a year. And, you know, life suddenly got really busy and I then got married, I had a child and suddenly there seemed to be less time for meditation at the very moment when I really needed it. Mm. And this is one of those strange things that happens with meditation. Often people use meditation as a sort of sticking plaster. I'm stressed, I'm not sleeping well, I seem to have these anxiety issues I'll start to meditate. And then when I feel better, I'll drop it. The technique that we use, Vedic meditation, is very much a proactive rather than a reactive approach. So that we're just meditating every day so that when something tricky crops up, we just take it in our stride, like mm -hmm. our technical issue before we, we got going this morning. You know, it's nothing. It's nothing, I, you know, I can take it in my stride. And that's how we sort of approach life, that we don't want to get terribly anxious about things and then reach for the, you know, something to, to calm us down. We want to have the calming effect already in place so that perhaps we don't get as stressed as we might. Now, people say to me, well, Anthony, you've been meditating for nearly 50 years. Surely you don't get stressed. And the answer is, of course, I get stressed. You know, I've got three grown-up kids I have a business, I have a couple of businesses, relationships, friends, family, I'm out there, I'm out there in the city, you know, London is an interesting and challenging place to live and work in, you know, I'm whizzing about getting on with life. And of course, I pick up stresses, of course I do. But it's the ability to deal with the stress quickly and efficiently, and to process it so that it just, in a sense, it's rather like water off a duck's back. Mm. It's not to say that it doesn't, the water doesn't hit the duck's back. Yes, it does but it just slips away and it has no lasting effect. And how is it, do you think, that meditation does that? Just to sort of sidestep for a second. Why does it do it? How does it do it? Yeah. Oh, that's a really interesting question, Leon. I think it's a, you know, what I'm talking about is something that has obviously come about after a number of years of practice. You don't have to practice for 50 years like me to get to this state. You can practice for six to 12 to 18 months and you'll have this technique in hand students always say to me you know surely you're using a different technique to the one that you're teaching me I say no I'm using exactly the same technique that you're using it's very simple to learn it's very easy to practice and I think what's happening is that because we meditate twice a day for 20 minutes we are constantly refreshing ourselves and we are constantly expelling stress and fatigue now we would 
hope that if we were sleeping well and getting good, you know, eight hours of good, nourishing, unbroken sleep every night, that we would not feel fatigued. But sadly, in today's world, and especially with electric light and screens and everything else, that impinges on the quality of our sleep. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that meditation replaces sleep, but sleep is the natural moment in our 24-hour cycle when we de-stress, recalibrate, refresh. Mm. Yep. And that is constantly compromised. You know, I think you, everybody can relate to that. I mean, are, are you a good sleeper? Yes. Good. That's great. <laughs> Seven to eight hours. I measure my sleep with a bit of tech called the Oura Ring, oh, I use- which listeners will be familiar with. Oh, do you? Right. Okay. Because I was very interested in having sort of explored the sleep angle for a number of years, which I'm fascinated with, uh, Matthew, Dr. Matthew Walker, yes. who wrote, wrote his book, you know, Why We Sleep. Fascinating. Brilliant I've book. Yep. Times. Brilliant speaker, brilliant book. Yep. And I strongly recommend it to people. You know, don't read it in bed because you might fall asleep reading it. <laughs> it is an, it's an excellent book, actually. If I had a penny for every time I recommended that to someone, I could probably stop working Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays. But on the Euro Ring, I don't know if you use the moment feature. I do. But you can actually see with moment, for, uh, if anyone listening is not sure what we're talking about, the Oura Ring has, the app has a feature called moment where you can do a breathing session or a meditation session and it tracks in real time the impact of that session on your heart rate variability and your resting heart rate. And it's really interesting to see that. I think we should just point out, Leanne, that this is a ring that you wear on your finger, which was primarily designed to track your sleep, yep. to see the quality of your sleep, how much REM, rapid eye movement sleep there is, how much deep sleep, what your latency is, how long it takes you to actually get to sleep, Mm. how long you actually spend in bed, how much time of that is asleep. And I thought, wow, that's fascinating. I I think I sleep well. Or I thought last night was a bad night's sleep, but then you check with a ring and, and with the app and it tells you actually you slept quite well or it's better than you thought. Mm. Now, I mean, the danger always with this tech is that it starts to run your life and you think you're sleeping really well and it says, no, you're not. Um, You had a really bad night's sleep. You know, it's a bit like walking down the street and people say, you bump into a friend and they say, hi, Leanne, are you okay? You look look really pale. Are are you okay? You're coming down with something. And you say, no, no, I feel fine. And then you meet somebody else and they say, gosh, you look really ill. And after a while, you're starting to believe that you are ill because everybody's telling you you look ill, but actually mm. you feel fine. And that's the danger with the tech. The tech is saying, I treat the tech with a healthy degree of skepticism. I enjoy just seeing whether my feelings tally with the, the, the supposed evidence. I treat it as an indication, not as gospel, mm. so to speak. Yeah, I blend it with a subjective, how do I feel? you know, measure. Yeah. I, th- I think one has to take a healthy, healthy yeah. approach on this. Otherwise one becomes obsessed and you get the tech running your life. Mm. And I think when it comes to the moments section that you were talking about, the meditation thing, I just simply do it to see how far my heartbeat drops and what the variable rate is. Yeah. Because that is something that's very interesting with Vedic meditation, that there was research done many, many years ago in laboratories where they took meditators and sort of wired them up to see actually what was going on. They nobody really understood what was happening at a physiological and mental level. And it showed that the body rests at a very, very deep level, that the metabolism slows right down, the heartbeat slows down, the breathing slows down. 
to a very deep level. I mean, almost similar to sleep, sometimes perhaps deeper than sleep. But the brain is not sleeping. The brain is absolutely awake. And so you have this kind of strange contradiction that the body is almost asleep, but the brain is very much awake. You wouldn't expect that to happen. And Vedic meditation is one of the very few meditation techniques where this happens. There, there are some others out there too, but this one shows that the body is resting very, very deeply. And when the body is resting deeply, it's getting refreshed, it's getting rid of accumulated fatigue, and at the same time, it's processing stress. Mm-hmm. Now, if we can do that twice a day, if we do the first meditation, perhaps shortly after waking up, it prepares us for the day. It gets us all shiny and everything sort of fired up so that any stress, any, any hassle that comes along can be dealt with effectively. The second meditation we tend to do before dinner so that we can then process any of the stress that has come along during the day. And then that means that our evening is nice and calm and that we can go to bed free of anxiety and worries and stress and we just slip in between the sheets and go to sleep. So that's the principle of Vedic meditation is it's two 20-minute sessions split throughout the day. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, You know, and we don't want to get hung up about the fact that perhaps it wasn't exactly 20 minutes, you know, that the doorbell rang and we had to cut it short. You know, we're absolutely, we're very realistic. You know, life gets in the way. Things happen. You know, sometimes you miss a meditation. It's not the end of the world. The last thing we want to do is get anxious about our meditation. Yeah. You know, we don't want to, and I think you touched upon this, you know, getting stressed about doing meditation, getting stressed about not being a meditator. Mm. You know, this this is very evident today. Well, let, let's talk about that briefly because... I think there is a lot of guilt around meditation. I do hear people say to me, because I talk about it in all my workshops and every aspect of what myself and my company do, and I do hear people say, I feel really guilty about this. I just can't get into it. Or it's not for me. Is there any other alternative? And one of the things I suggest is to find something that is meditative. So for one particular client I've got in mind, it was painting and knitting. And they were two things that they they did very frequently and they were very intentional, purposeful things that they did. And I I think that is meditative for that individual. Do you agree with that idea that it isn't just about sitting in a particular position for a particular duration of time? Could you expand on that? What else do you think is meditative? I think that, you know, some people say to me, oh, you know, I run. I run a great deal. Running is my meditation. Well, I would disagree I would say, yes, you may be doing something that's quite extreme from what you're doing for the rest of the day. You're putting your body actually into a high state of stress because, you know, we're designed to run, not for pleasure. We're designed to run to flee or fight. It's that very, one of the very first natural reactions that we were programmed with, the flight-flight response. So to run for pleasure is actually putting your body in a, an extreme state of stress. Mm. I absolutely accept the fact that you find the running, the beat, the rhythm, the heart, you know, the breath, all that helps clear your mind and perhaps you can think about a particular issue or not think about anything, just concentrate on your step and gait. I absolutely understand that. But I wouldn't call it, strictly speaking, meditation because what we want to do is reach a state of stillness and there are many different meditation techniques out there. They all do slightly different things. Now, when we bear in mind apps like Headspace and Calm, which are phenomenally popular, mm. you know, they're quick and easy to download, they don't cost a lot of money, and off you go. 
and you can sort of do this wherever you want, whenever you want. But I've had a lot of what I would call app refugees come and learn with me. And the reason they come is for several reasons. One is they get irritated by the person talking to them, they're irritated by their voice, by being told what to do. And, you know, little reminders come up, you should be meditating, have you done your meditation? And that also all sort of adds to the guilt trip. What we do with Vedic meditation is teach people a technique which they can practice on their own, without me, without an app, they are totally self-sufficient. And that disconnection from anything digital, you know, we want to get away from the digital, you know, why, why are you using a digital medium at the very point when you're trying to slow down and disconnect from everything and stay calm? Yeah. To me, that's, it's sort of, you know, a crazy contradiction. What really attracts me to Vedic meditation, and, you know, I'm just so blessed to have it in my life, is, you know, I can meditate wherever I want. A couple of years ago, I was on a, on a beach with a friend in Europe. It was a beautiful sunlit evening. We were just walking down the beach in our swimming costumes, and we planned to meditate earlier in the, uh, later in the evening, in the early evening. And I said, hey, you know, why don't we just sit down on sand and, and meditate here with the ocean right in front of us? I mean, it's such a beautiful place. Let's do it. And she said, yeah, let's do it. And we just sat down and meditated. And it was great. But if I was reliant on my app, I thought, hold on a second. I'm going to just run back up the beach to get my phone. And then I come back. And then I find my phone hasn't got enough juice or whatever. You know, it's just a ridiculous palaver. Mm. What we want to do is just be fluid and easygoing with this and just, you know, do it whenever we want. I completely understand that there are people who need that assistance. They need, they need the digital assistance. They need the teacher to be beside them, holding their hand all the way. Yes, of course, there are people who need that. And we, I will hold people's hands to begin with, metaphorically, to begin with. And then they realize very quickly, within about three or four days, hey, I can do this. I can do this on my own. It's a bit like learning to ride a bicycle. You know, to begin with, you need somebody just behind you acting as a stabilizer. And then you know, when you're riding the bike, you watch kids riding a bike, the parent or whoever's teaching them takes their hand off the, the saddle and the kid's riding on their own and they can do it and off they go. That's it. They never look back. And that's really what we do. You know, we give you the support, we give you the ongoing support, but you are taught to be self-sufficient from the world, word go. And people like that. I agree. I absolutely admit that, you know, there are some people who find that scary and they need constant support. I will give people regular support as and when they want it. They can always come back. They can always ask me for help and assistance. They can always plug in. You know, I offer extra courses and group meetings and so on for that very reason. Mm. Essentially, it makes you independent. And I think a lot of people love that. They really mm. enjoy that. It just means you can meditate wherever you are, whenever you want. Yeah. And can you work up to the 20 minutes in the morning and the afternoon or is that? No, we go straight in to that from the word go. The 20 minutes is the optimum amount of time. If you meditate for less, your body and mind is not really getting the chance to slow down and reach that state of tranquility. And once you, I mean, some people, you know, you can reach that state of tranquility quite quickly within moments. It doesn't happen in the 18th minute. It can happen with, within moments of starting a meditation, but you want to get all the juice out of it. Mm. You don't want to go for longer because actually what's happening is that the body is de-stressing too much. 
And then when you open your eyes and get out with the day, you might find that it's too much of a shock that, and also you've rested to such an extent that actually you can't get going again. It's not that you become a zombie. It's just that, you know, you want to get back up out into the world and get on with it. And you don't want to be kind of feeling sluggish or under some sort of heavy weight. Yeah. That makes sense. And is the 20 minutes a part of the Vedic principles or is there any science behind that? Or why, why 20? I think, you know, the thing about Vedic meditation is, is it's many thousands of years old. I mean, mm. the scholars are undecided whether it's three, five, six thousand years old. I tend to be, I mean, I'm a sort of historian by training, so I tend to go on the cautious side. I mean, it's probably the oldest thing around. And if we look at you know, Buddhism is a branch of, of Vedic meditation, as right. are a number of you know religions and things. This is not religious. I hasten to say this is not a religious technique. It originated in India, but it's not Indian any more than gravity is English because Isaac Newton discovered it. It's just something that, that was a universal way of dealing with your day. Mm. And it was designed, interestingly, it was designed for what they called the ancient Sanskrit sages and, and gurus called householders. It was designed for householders, people like you and me, people who have relationships and jobs and get out there in life. It's not a monastic practice. It's not designed for people who want to go and live in caves or up mountains or in forests. You know, there are techniques out there which kind of lead you in that direction. This is absolutely not, not about that. This is a technique for modern life, modern living. Mm. And that's, that's another beautiful aspect of it. Mm. Love it. Okay. In the remaining sort of four or five minutes, let's talk specifically about Mind Mojo. I love the name, by the way. What kind of things do you offer? Well, I offer a straightforward Vedic meditation course which is run over four consecutive days. Okay. 90 minutes on each day, step by step. You just kind of build Is that up. an online course? No, that's in person. Okay. So all my teaching is in person. Right. Prior to that, actually a prerequisite is that you attend what we call an introductory talk, which is basically an opportunity for you to check me out, check out Vedic meditation, check out my mojo, hear what it's all about, how you practice it, what the expectations are, how you can apply it to your life. And maybe you arrive at the talk thinking, well, this is why I need it. But then you discover, wow, it can offer me something else or, you know, and it's not just for people who perhaps have a concern. You know, it's not just for people with insomnia or anxiety or depression or lack of attention. It's for inquisitive, sensible, intelligent, inquisitive people saying, well, you know, I, I've heard about meditation. Let's check this out. You know, mm. and they're coming at it from an intellectual angle rather than perhaps a, a medical angle. Yeah. And what does that course cost? The course fee is variable. We base it on your income. Okay. So it's in, in fact, it's a sort of donation. It's a donation-based fee. Right. So those that earn more money pay more. Yep. Those that don't earn so much pay less. Okay. And that way it makes it sort of equitable. The introductory talk is free. They're on my website. You just book yourself a seat. They're all held in London in Notting Hill. So come along. That's free. Bring a friend if you want. And we talk for about an hour. You get the full lowdown. Then if you're interested in taking a course, those are every other weekend. Friday to Monday evening. I won't go into the timings of that, but the idea is that it's very adaptable to you if you're a working person. So we can accommodate you there. And then once you've learned, you can come along to group meditations, which are also every fortnight. 
opportunity to meet other meditators, share your experiences, pick up some tips and tricks, hear more about the Vedic worldview, and meditate as a group. And that's quite fun. A lot of people enjoy that, meditating as a group, rather than just meditating on your own at home or office or wherever. Mm. And then we offer courses, advanced courses, retreats, special knowledge meetings, and so on and so forth. So it's all available if people want it. And, you know, people love to plug back in and, and, you know, carry on down the path. Very cool. So you mentioned your website, which is www.mindmojo.co. I believe your Twitter handle is at mindmojoco. Correct. Facebook, mindmojoco, and Insta, exactly the same, mindmojoco. Are there any thoughts that you would like to leave people with, Anthony? Anything I've not asked you that you'd like in just maybe a couple of minutes just to, to touch on? I think often people are thinking that meditation addresses a particular issue, as I've touched upon before, you know, about sleep, bad sleep or anxiety. I think what is absolutely fascinating is that quite quickly people realise that those issues can be dealt with very, very quickly and very efficiently. But actually what happens then is that the door is opened to something much more profound that you start to realise that there is a greater connection with yourself. And I know that sounds a bit strange, but often we're also busy and rushing around that we kind of slightly forget who we are and we get compromised and perhaps nudged and budged into certain directions by friends, peer pressure, colleagues, whatever. And we need to just step back onto our proper path and Twice a day, we're reconnecting with ourselves. The rest of the world can just wait for 20 minutes. Yeah, I love that. We'll come back to that in a moment. And, you know, you'll reconnect with the world in a moment, but not right now. For right now, I just want you to settle and see what happens. And the attention turns inwards. And very soon, you realize that actually, although you're turning the attention inwards, that helps you turn your attention outwards so that when you open your eyes, there is a greater connection with everything that's going on around you. Mm. You don't have to change yep. your life. You don't have to become a vegetarian. You don't have to wear it toe sandals. You, know, you can do that all if you want. But the point is that life becomes so much richer. It becomes less friction-filled. Everything becomes smoother, easier, more delightful. This is not to say that we run around like sort of bliss bunnies, hugging trees and anything else that we can find. You know, yes, we are very happy people, but because we see the truth. And, you know, I think we live in a world where on all levels, where there's misinformation, disinformation, fake news, whatever you want to call it. And we're under this waterfall of just horrible, nasty stuff. And once in a while, we just need to go out there by having a meditation twice a day, we're pushing that all to one side and we're recalibrating the filters that process the stuff that comes into us. Mm. So that in fact, the, the filter gauge becomes smaller and it's pushed further away so that less stuff comes through. Less, you know, we can actually determine and have some sort of control on what we want to accept. Yep. We don't have to watch the news. We don't have to read the newspapers. You know, and sometimes we do this habitually, but it actually gets us down. Yeah. And so we're much more discriminating about the way we live our lives, the people that we interact with, what we do, what we engage with. And life becomes much, much easier. Yeah. 
And I think that's a great place to leave. I've talked a lot recently about lost connections. What you're talking about there is the pure essence of reconnecting. So it's a great point to leave it. Anthony, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure, Leanne. Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? Jump on our website, www.bodyshotperformance.com and click on Take the Test. It'll take you through to a short two to three minute test. And at the end of that, you'll get a scorecard and a free 39 page report based on our six signals, sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please think of someone who could really benefit from the content and hit that share button and send it across to them. And of course, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you very much for listening.